0: In Daniel 2, we are going to see a uh, God's historic program or plan for the period of the Gentile supremacy over the nation of Israel that corresponds with the same time that this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, I think I need to slow down so that this doesn't become, a, there we go. You're catching up with me back there. In, ch- in chapter 2, God's going we're gonna see God's historic program or plan for the nation of Israel. And also what's known as Gentile supremacy and God's chastisement over said nation during that same time frame and that same time period. And nowhere else in all the Bible, with exception to Daniel chapter seven, that do we see a more comprehensive picture given of world history than we're gonna see in Daniel chapter two and the dream uh, that that Nebuchadnezzar has. In Daniel 2, we're going to see a preview of human history all the way from Daniel's day, which was about 600 years before Christ, all the way until Christ comes again during his second advent, which will usher in the millennial kingdom of Christ. That entire panoramic of world history according to God's plan is revealed through Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This period of history from Daniel until the second advent of Christ is referred to by Christ himself in Luke 21:24 uh, as the times of the Gentiles. And in that passage Jesus teaches on the signs of the times just prior to that time, prior to the time of his return. In Luke twenty-one, twenty-four, Jesus said, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that phrase right there, the times of the Gentiles, is nowhere more fully detailed than in Daniel chapter 2. And we see here in verse 24 of Luke 21 that this time of the Gentiles is a time specifically when Jerusalem, as it says, will be trampled under the foot of the Gentiles. And that's exactly what we have in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The head of gold being Babylon itself, beginning in a time of world history when the Gentile domination and chastisement of Yahweh over the nation of Israel will find its place. But we also see here clearly a distinction being made between the Gentile nations and the Gentile peoples and Israel as a distinct nation. And we are to clearly see here that coinciding with the return of Christ and the fulfillment of said Gentile dominion that God has a plan and a future for the nation of Israel once the time of the Gentiles has ended. That time is also seen and connected with Paul's teaching in Romans 11 when the Apostle Paul says that there's a partial spiritual hardening against the nation of Israel that will make the salvation of the Jews, if you think about it through the New Testament, almost non-existent. Until, he says there in Romans 11:25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then in verses 11, 26 and 27 there in romans 11 he says paul says and so all israel will be saved so we know that after the time of the hardness against the jewish nation is fulfilled there's a time when all israel will be saved there's a future for the nation there's a future for god's people his old testament covenant people there's a time in which God is going to make application of the New Covenant more specifically and directly for them. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's a time that's still yet in the future that we are still awaiting when the Deliverer will come. Jesus will come a second time. And when Jesus comes his second time, God is going to wrap up a time that he has been In gathering Gentiles at large in large numbers all around the world, we oftentimes refer to that as the Church Age. And in Daniel chapter seven, we're going to see, or nine, we're going to see more specifically what that looks like. That time period in Daniel's 70th week, we, the time between the 69th week and the 70th week, this time when we refer to it as a Church Age time. But in verse 27 of Romans 11 Paul says this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins there is a time and a place in the future that God is going to deal most specifically and directly with the nation of Israel and the new covenant blessings that have been appreciated and poured out on the gentile world and the ingathering of the gentiles God we see after a period of that ingathering of gentiles is going to send Jesus back to earth a second time to fulfill the original disciples, and the entire nation of Israel's hope of what they were looking for with the advent of their Messiah King, which is the establishment of his earthly kingdom rule. And it's at this time that the scripture will be fulfilled when a massive ingathering of Jewish people will take place as they recognize Jesus as their Savior King. So the time of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles in gathering will both find their culmination at the second advent of Jesus Christ. However, all of that being said, it's most important for us to understand as we start looking at this dream in Daniel 2 this this morning that the content and meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is not what is of greatest significance in this chapter as significant and as amazing as predictive prophecy is i believe the most important thing here for us to understand is the fact that it's daniel's god our god is the one who controls said future and it's this god that has predicted and foretold what will happen in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar for the sole purpose of elevating Daniel within his administration, the king's, Nebuchadnezzar's administration, whereby God will have great and undue influence through a young boy who grows to be an old man there in that administration named Daniel, whereby God will use his life and the revelation that he gives him to accomplish His purposes. Amen? And that's the God that we're here to learn more about as we sing songs of worship to Him, as we seek to serve Him, as we gather as a local church, and as we scatter to be ambassadors for Christ as though in chains. Because we believe the revelation that was given in Daniel chapter 2 to be of God and that Jesus will come again. So the outline that we're going to use this morning, we obviously can't get through the entirety of chapter 2, there's some, uh, what have we got, 49 verses. And if you know me, I'm I'm doing well just to get through about 10, usually on a given Sunday. And so this morning we're going to get through 23 by the grace of God. The first portion here from verses 1 through 13, we're just simply going to look at the king's dream and his decree. And then the second portion, we're going to see Daniel's discretion and discernment from verses 14 through 18. And then the third portion, the dream revealed and Daniel's praise, verses 19 down through verse 23. So let's take a look at chapter 2, verse 1 together. The king's dream and decree. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now there's a couple things uh, by way of housekeeping that perhaps need to be noted here, and this probably isn't something that you might normally try to make note of, but if you do much study and reading uh, historically, that is, of uh, of biblical scholars and critics more so on the book of Daniel, they tend to take issue with chapter 2 verse 1 and the issue of timing, where it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And the potential problem in this time mentioned is that it appears from their perspective to contradict what was recorded in Daniel chapter 1 about the training The timing of the training of the Hebrew young men. In Daniel 1 5 it says that the training was for a period of three years after which they were examined and put into service before the king. So critics of the Word of God jump on issues like this and say that the Bible simply contradicts itself, ergo it can't be trusted in this area and and thus it shouldn't be trusted in others as well. However, Um, That simply isn't the case on an issue like this. I mean, if you were, let's say, writing a document and you know that you were writing somewhat of a forgery of a document and you were going to pretend that you were writing it, you know, 600 years prior to the time that you were writing it, you think that the writer of said document would... Make notice of a potential contradiction as easy as this one would be, going from the end of our chapter one into what we call chapter two, and would have made some um, some corrections, thank you, along the way to make certain that future critics couldn 't so easily point that out. However, um, critics today fail to recognize. And this is what most Daniel scholars will hold to, that Daniel's recording of time here is in keeping with what's called the Babylonian manner of dating, the dating that is of a king's ascension to the throne. That during the first year, or what's called the ascension year of a king, whether it's a full year or a partial year, that year doesn't technically count as year one for said new king. So Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year would have been Daniel's first year in training, having been taken into captivity, which would have made Daniel's second year of training the king's first full year as king, and then Daniel's third year of training the king's second year during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And if that's maybe not uh, quite as clear as you might like it to be, of good cheer immediately following service today, just make certain that you hook up with Pastor Matt, and he is fully uh, prepared to give you a scholarly dissertation on the Ascension King, Year of Kings, back 600 years before the coming of Christ. Pastor Matt, you know, other duties as a sign, right there, there you go, buddy. Now, while I believe that to be the best and the most obvious option that, 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 needs to simply be understood here. I also have a second option of my own that works just as well that still acknowledges the ascension year of kings not being counted as their first year. And so we start by asking the question, what does the text say? Which I think is one of the best and my favorite questions while doing Bible study, right? What does the text say? actually say. So we look at the text and it says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So what do we know? By way of very simple observation. That in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he had dreams. And his spirit was troubled because of these dreams and his sleep left him. We have no indication in this verse whatsoever as to the manner or the quickness with which Nebuchadnezzar took issue with said dreams that were disruptive of his sleep. We don't know, perhaps, if he waited until his third or his fourth or perhaps his sixth year to finally call the the wise men and the conjurers and the Chaldeans, as we're going to see in verse 2, before him. We have no reference to time whatsoever as to how quickly Nebuchadnezzar made this an issue with which he was seeking to have the knowledge gained from his wise men are you seeing this we have no idea however skeptics today want to use daniel 2 1 as some of their proof positive that god's word has inherent flaws interesting no such flaws whatsoever. So, whenever you're out witnessing and you're using Daniel chapter 2 to do witnessing, which I'm sure most of you do often, because Daniel chapter 2 and the predictive prophecy that we have there is so staggering that if Daniel was written 600 years before Christ as is claimed historically and as was codified through the Dead Sea Scrolls and the dating that they put on the Dead Sea Scrolls and it predicts, as it does, the cutting off of Messiah, as we see in chapter 9. You think that in witnessing to lost people, they would find that very interesting indeed. So, I propose that perhaps somebody who's into writing tracks, and there, perhaps there is really a so track out there on Daniel chapter 2, I just don't know. But the use of that would be a very effective tool in witnessing indeed. Now, notice what the king does once God has... Fully gotten and arrested his attention. Verses two through six. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And here's the key part that the king was seeking for to tell the king his dreams. Okay? And here in verse 2 we see that the king is very determined obviously to find out what his dreams meant. So we see that he brings in the magicians. He calls in the magicians, those who practiced magic and fortune telling. He called in the conjurers. These were the astrologers of the day, people who tried to foretell the future through the reading of the stars. It says that he called in the sorcerers, those who tried to communicate with the dead through the use of drugs and the the spirit world through demons. And it says that he also brought in the Chaldeans. These would have been the philosophers, the scientists, the wise men of his day, among whom would have belonged Daniel and uh, his friends, who it seems in the initial uh, bringing in before the king were not bodily present, but Daniel would have been amongst this group known as the Chaldeans, uh, wise men. All the king's advisors we see here are summoned for the purpose of telling the king his dreams. And in verse 3, it says, The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Verse 5, The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Now, just a little note bene right there, if you just kind of put your finger right there and we stop. This, this um, statement here, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap, gives us a little bit of insight into how the king treated those who were in his administration. And so when we go back to chapter 1 and we see Daniel seeking permission from the eunuch that was put in charge over him, you can understand the fear that he would have had in not doing precisely what the king had told them to do in giving food and drink from the king's table, to these young Judean boys, and for Daniel and his three friends to have made the request not to, and for him to have granted such request, I think we clearly can see as an, as an act of God, which we talked about in chapter 1, but we see here a little bit more of the consternation, and the not just the potential threat of death, but the the real threat of death that said eunuch or Arioch would have faced by not doing as the king said, and giving Daniel and his three friends food and drink from his table. Verse 6, but if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. So even here in the king's declaration of what they will receive, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Now we have the privilege and the insight of reading this uh, 2,600 years after the fact. But we can see that God is in the process of setting the stage such that Daniel will have great elevation and gifts and reward and honor within the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're already starting to see little snippets of this, of how God has directed the king's heart like a channel of water. He moves king's hearts wherever he so wishes. And he has moved the king to make declarations such that in shortness order here, Daniel will be the man who would receive such elevation. And they all know that they're in trouble. I mean, all of these that have come before him, they know they're in trouble when the king refuses to tell them his dream and continues to insist that not only do they tell him the dream, but also the interpretation as well. And the king knows that anyone potentially could just come up with an interpretation of any dream. I mean, if you were to give me a dream you had, I could make up any wild imagination tell you what the dream means, and you would have no way to verify whether or not that was the meaning of said dream. But if I could tell you your dream and then give you an interpretation, you're going to be way more assured that the revelatory power I have with the gods is assured. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar rightly understands. And so he says, the king says to all his so-called wise men, look, if you don't make known to me both the dream and its interpretation, you're useless to me, and I'm going to have all of you exterminated like the cockroaches that you are. So in verses 7 through 9, the king's wise men do the only thing that they can think of doing, and so they stall for more time. In verse 7 through 9, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Pretty wise king, eh? And again, realizing the degree of their trouble, the king's wise men uh, give one more shot across the bow in verses 10 and 11. And the Chaldeans now answered and said to the king, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Kind of sounds like he's trying to save his skin, doesn't it? Because that's exactly what he's doing. Moreover, in verse 11, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. They tell the king, look, There isn't a man alive who can do what you're asking. Only the gods can do this. And Nebuchadnezzar was rightly in his thinking, understanding that you're correct. Only the gods can do this. And if you're going to claim to be my sorcerer or my Chaldean or my my wise people, the people who give me counsel, I need to know that you have access to the gods. Because the gods have placed me in this high and lofty position that I have as king over the greatest nation on planet Earth. And so they inform him that that's impossible because what the king is looking for can only be done by God himself. And that's that's why we cherish and relish our scriptures, the word of God, because it is exactly that. It is a a revelatory word from God to people, and he superimposed even the writing of the words that he used men to write so that the very words that we have in scripture are the very words of God of God. And we can know with certainty that they are God's words. And this was the same kind of certainty that the king was looking for from his wise man. They tell him this cannot be done. This acknowledgement, as truthful and as humbling as it certainly would have been for these magicians and the Chaldeans and the conjurers, Um, It did not appease King Nebuchadnezzar and his wrath. Look at verse 12 and 13. He said, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So that's what gives us the indication that Daniel and his friends weren't a part of the group that originally went before the king, and we're also going to see that Daniel seeks permission later here in a few verses to have a hearing before the king. So here we see clearly that the response, though honorable and noble because it's truthful finally, it's it's infuriating to the king, And he has made the connection, perhaps, that all along, all the, perhaps, other interpretations that they have made for him in the past were, as he said, nothing more than lies and deception. And this is the way that I think anyone probably should feel with regard to a religious system as impotent as these religious people are. Not having a true word from God. So the king, in his anger, ordered all of them in his entire kingdom to be executed, including Daniel and his three friends, as well as all the other Judean boys who were trained for service in the king's court as well. Now, this sets us up for the second portion of our outline this morning, that of Daniel's uh, discretion and discernment. Notice how Daniel, this young man, this young boy, responds. Notice verse 14. It says, "Then Daniel replied." So they went looking for Daniel. Right? We see over here, and they looked for Daniel and his friends, and we clearly see that they found him because he replied to them, and he replied with discretion and dis- dis- uh, discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now, this word for discretion here in the Hebrew is a word that simply. Uh, has the idea of to counsel, of providing uh, wise counsel, um, that which is uh, the cause or product of just wise, solid counsel, discretion. And the word for discernment literally means taste, taste, and speaks of uh, of appropriateness, of suitability that which Daniel's counsel had taste. It was suitable for the moment. Daniel's reply to Arioch is craftily wise and of good taste, and it was an appropriate reply for the situation, one that again gains Daniel some favor uh, before Arioch and is going to find him with a place standing before the king. And one of the things that's extremely impressing about this young Daniel, just like we noticed in chapter 1, is how Daniel has a calmness of spirit when put under extreme duress. A calmness of spirit when under extreme duress. And it would seem to me that that's not something that's very... Typical of most people and especially of young people who are prone to great excesses emotionally. Which would also perhaps um, codify for us some of the observations we made of Daniel in chapter 1 verse 8 as the young man who made up his mind. He made the condition of his heart set that he was not going to sin against God. We see a depth of this young man. And again, it gives us the opportunity to recognize, especially for you young people here this morning, that the idea of, of waiting till I get a little bit older, then I'm going to really get serious with God, is, is not a notion that's, um, that's even recognized within the scriptures. We see very young people, as a Daniel and his three friends, who seem to have a great sense of self-control, when under great duress, and a deep walk with the Lord, which would be the reason they're capable of doing such in the first place. Amen? So that needs to be an encouragement, not only to us older people, but all of us, especially you young folks who are here today. Notice verse 15. Notice the reply. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. Again, these verses tell us something significant about Daniel as a young man and his ability to have self-control to, to live and to act with God like self control in the moment, which I believe is one of the things that we refer to as the fruit of the Spirit, the ability to have self control. When faced with crises in life, Daniel is responding to the knowledge that he has and the trust that he has put in the sovereignty of God who rules from heaven and rules over earth. Daniel seems to have a an ability to quickly assess situations and place himself in a spot with an acceptance of the sovereignty of God over his life in that moment and recognizing that he can only do what he can do underneath the sovereignty and the providential hand of God. As we saw again from chapter 1, we see the same here in chapter 2 as well. And so Daniel, having... This conversation with Ariok, we do not know what the nature of said conversation was with Ariok other than the fact that what brought Ariok to Daniel's doorsteps. The fact that the king had a dream, it was, he was losing sleep, he brought other wise men and the the magicians and the conjurers, the Chaldeans, that were all brought before him, they were unable to tell him of his dream, and the decree was made to kill Daniel, his friends, and all the other wise men and and, and in the administration. This is what has brought Ariok to Daniel's doorsteps. And so Daniel, we see in verse 16, he makes his request. And he, he makes his request before the king, which tells us that whatever the conversation he had right here with Ariok, he said to Ariok, why is the king's request, for the, the, the decree from the king so urgent? Now, there had to be some conversation that took place along the way after that question, but what we see when we get to 16, it says, so when Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time, we see that whatever conversation that Daniel had, he's still in the position of seeking permission for the right to do the things that he's doing. And God, again, is obviously granting him favor with the requests that he's making. God, again, we see is in the process of, Of establishing Daniel as his young man who's going to grow into an old man in the administration of the kings of Babylon. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now we have absolutely no knowledge of this and so this is just pure speculation on my part and so I'm telling you that up front. but I do find it somewhat interesting because the other wise men, those who are more known to King Nebuchadnezzar, obviously were requesting more time, or they were at least requesting the king to give them the dream. Well, okay, yes, but could you give us the dream? Okay, yes, 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 but could you give us the dream? And so Daniel here has gone in and he's requested some more time. And we don't see the king just immediately saying, no, give me the dream immediately or it's over. So I don't know. But it's kind of nice to think <clears throat> that this might have been one of those moments where, where Arioch says to the king, "Hey, by the way, I never told you this, but this is the guy that's been eating vegetables for the last X number of years. Um, look and check him out. He outscored the rest. I think God, perhaps, is odds. Perhaps are really with this guy. I don't know if that was stated or not. I have no way of telling. It's just kind of nice to perhaps maybe assume that. I don't know." It's not in the scriptures. I just, it's just a little side thought. You ever have side thoughts? Sure you do. I'm not the only one that has these kind of side thoughts, but it's a nice side thought. And perhaps it didn't happen like that at all. But what we do see is that he's requesting to have more time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. So again, <clears throat> we don't know the specifics, but we do know that Daniel was successful and that God was granting him favor and was given this extra time. And we know this because when we get to verse 17, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. So here we discover, in Daniel's life, the secret of the inner strength and resolve For Daniel, and it's simply the fact that Daniel is a man of prayer. Daniel's a man of prayer, as were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What a scene this must have been! Just try to imagine four young teenagers on their knees, bowed in prayer before Yahweh saying, Lord, if you want to give us this information and and save our lives, it's up to you. Do with us as you please. But they beseeched the Lord. And here we also discover something about the God of heaven, which is a simple truth that we all know, and that is, is that God wants us to be men and women of prayer. When we perhaps contextually and significantly different than Daniel, find ourselves between the rock and the proverbial hard place, what is the first thing we do? Do we seek out brothers and sisters in Christ, those that we've developed deep relationships with through life group? How about that for a plug for life group? It's pretty nice, right? Yeah, it was. It was intentional. The deep relationships that we've developed with people who we meet together with in life groups. When we find ourselves between the proverbial rock and the hard place, do we have people that we can go to? Daniel went to his house, found his friends, and they prayed, seeking compassion from the God of heaven. Now, the the other thing I think that's neat about this is that we can learn a really significant lesson. Daniel chapter 2 shows us very clearly that God is sovereign over the heavens and the earth. God is the one who causes kings and kingdoms to rise and fall. God is, no one can stay his hand. He will do exactly what he plans and intends to do and he will accomplish everything that he has willed to accomplish. That will happen Exactly the way God has determined that that will happen. Amen? Amen? We see that. But we also see that God doesn't want us living with such deterministic hearts and mindsets, such that we fail to go to Him in prayer with the wrong kind of attitude that says, well, if God wants to get it done, He's going to get it done. God will accomplish His will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? And one of his wills on earth as it is in heaven is for the development and the growth of your faith and your spiritual process and progress more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why we have such beautiful verses as Philippians 2.13 that God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what God is up to. He's at work in you to conform you more into the image of Jesus Christ. And he has ordained both the means and the ends by which his will gets accomplished. And so Daniel and his friends, being godly young men as they were, they, were, they made up their mind they were not going to sin against God. They loved God. They loved his word. They understood that God ruled from heaven above. They, they understood their Old Testament. But we see that they also recognized that God wanted their hearts to come before him in prayer and to seek his face to accomplish the will that God was wanting to have accomplished and I'm praying that God has the will to have this thing stay on my head all of a sudden it keeps popping off my ear and it's becoming a major distraction to my thinking process I must be at a good point in the text right here so listen up God wants you praying God doesn't want you just assuming that well, since I know God's sovereign and God's going to get every, He's going to do it anyways. No, He wants your heart to be supple and. There it went again, and soft before Him. He wants to have a relationship with you that's that's intimate, where you seek His face for His compassion and for his knowledge, and for his wisdom. He doesn't want us to have some super ultra-deterministic idea that there's no need to go do the work of evangelism because God's going to save exactly who he's going to save, right? But he's also ordained the means, and those means are you. And he wants you crying out to him day and night and and having a prayer list of individuals for whom you can go and share your faith with. And whenever you get stuck between a rock and a hard place, he wants you also to have friends. Friends like Daniel has friends, where you can go and seek compassion from the God of heaven so that he can, Philippians 2.13, be at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure in your life. You following me? Yes. That is such a, a an important and significant truth that we need to ascertain, and we see that very clearly here with Daniel and his friends. They are... Young men of prayer. Where am I? Verse 19, I think, because it says 18. This thing's got me so convoluted. I've never had this thing do this in such a long time. All of a sudden, now it's really bothering me. I might need some duct tape. anybody got some duct tape? I can just strap this thing right to my face. Thank you, Matt Hark. What are you bringing me? My ear. My ear is growing. What do you What do you got, man? What is that? Uh, Now Is this any better? There we go. That's back on. So, Daniel and his friends seeking request from the God of heaven concerning the mystery of the king's dream. And then we get to verse 19 and notice it gets us to the third portion here where the dream is revealed in Daniel's praise, 19 through 23. Notice verse 19. Then, then, and I love this first word right here of verse 19 because it precedes, it precedes this portion over here where it says that they got together as friends and they requested compassion from God concerning the matter. Then, as a result of seeking the face of God, then God revealed this mystery to Daniel in a night vision. God's still in the work of growing and grooming Daniel's heart to have full confidence in him, to come before him in matters when he's in, in, in need. Daniel, a man of prayer, then the mystery is revealed to him in a night vision, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So after the revealing of the mystery, Daniel erupts with a psalm of praise to his God for giving him the king's dream as well as its interpretation. Notice the psalm of praise. In verse 20, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Verse 22, It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. We see here that Daniel's praise focuses on two aspects of God's character. Both of which play a pivotal role in the chapter. Look again at verse 20. Notice what Daniel says. After saying, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. He then gives the reason why. For wisdom and power belong to him. I've said this before maybe not recently but the most important thing you think are the thoughts you think when you think about God because the thoughts that you have when you think about God will ultimately determine the course of your life and your eternity Daniel's thoughts toward God were that he was a God of wisdom and all power belonged to him Daniel had in view, in his mind, the image of a big God. And as God revealed to him the nature of this dream from Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation, I'm sure Daniel's expanse of that God all the more great. He recognized that God is powerful. That although Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, its king, seemed to have all the power on the, on the human plane, they just... Uh, Overthrew Jerusalem. The beginning of the deportations were taking place. Daniel's already been there over three years and has been trained to serve in the king's court. While Nebuchadnezzar is presuming to have control over Israel, God reveals to Daniel as prophet the truth of the matter. And he shows him that Nebuchadnezzar is king only because God himself has set him up as the most powerful king in the known world. That Nebuchadnezzar's place as the head of gold, as we will see in this dream next week, is an act of the hand of God alone. While Nebuchadnezzar on the human plane was claiming all the credit. Daniel also recognizes that God's wise, an all-wise God. It's God who knows the beginning from the end. It was God who spoke in the galaxies that we know of, and even ones we don't, leapt into existence. Everything that, that is, everything that has being, has its substance because of God's wisdom and power. Everything. And here Daniel gives testimony to the fact that his own wisdom is derived from God, that God made known to him the mystery of the king's matter. And so the words of the Chaldeans and the conjurers and the magicians were true. No man can do this, what you're asking. Only the gods could give you the request for which you ask. And so the true God of heaven is here in the process of setting the stage for the elevation of his man, Daniel. And he gives him the dream and its interpretation Because only God in his wisdom, according to Daniel 2 and according to the rest of the entire revealed word of God, only God can reveal the mysteries of life. And that's the God, church, that we serve. And that we're learning to serve. And that we're learning to do Philippians 2.12 as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when we see the gospel according to Daniel chapter 2, it ought to give us a solid footing in the recognition that the fear of the Lord is indeed the beginning of wisdom. And there's no need to fear him who can kill the body but can't cast body and soul into hell, but you need to fear him who can kill the body and cast body and soul, the soul into hell. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Daniel has a fresh recognition of this after God makes this revelation in the night to him. And he ends with a word of praise to his God. So we're going to wrap up right here this morning. We're going to pick up next week and get through the rest of chapter 2. Look at the, look at the, uh, the dream, the statue, the meaning. So come back next week. You don't want to miss that. This has often been said, dare to be a Daniel. I don't really like saying it that way. I like saying, dare to be a young man or woman of God. Dare to be a man or woman of God who recognizes that God is the one who reveals mysteries, the mysteries of life. And he has made himself known so evidently to us that we might know him and grope for him Love Him and serve Him all the days of our life. Amen? Let's pray together.